welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 61 for Wednesday, March 1st, 2017. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. We're just a little bit more than a week away from PAX East 2017, happening in Boston, Massachusetts on March 10th through March 12th. And I'm fortunate to have had two panel submissions accepted for Sunday, March 12th. At 1.30 p.m. in the Cuttlefish Theater, I'll be moderating the panel Life After Graduation, where I'll be speaking with four recent college graduates who have now spent a year or two working in the games industry at such companies as Irrational and Riot Games. I'll be asking them if college prepared them for the career they now find themselves in, and whether or not other people should pursue game design degrees, or if they didn't, how they managed to get into the industry. And then at 4 o'clock in the Bobcat Theater, I'll be moderating Plus One to Journalism, Becoming a Better Writer. This panel is all about the art and craft of gaming journalism. And on that panel will be not only Susan Arndt, who has joined me on many panels before, as well as on this podcast, and her former Joystick.com colleague, Alexander Slowinski, but also somebody who is joining me on today's Polygamer. Last August, I was at a Boston Indie Developers barbecue, hobnobbing up with the local journalists and developers, and I was super surprised and excited to discover that somebody I have long followed and admired on Twitter was the person I've been chatting with for the last 10 minutes. On Twitter, he is Tron Knotts, K-N-O-T-T-S, like the wonderful actor Don Knotts. And in real life and on this podcast today, he is Jonathan Holmes. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, Ken. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Good. If I remember correctly, did we sit under a shady tree yes. and have a long talk about this and that? We were chatting about Nintendo, and we were chatting with Will Brierly. Yes. What an idyllic afternoon that was. It was uh, delightful. It seems so long ago now. Uh, there was a completely different air uh, in the world around us then. Even the air tasted sweeter than it does on this uh, bizarre February afternoon contemplating the rest of 2017 we're in now. But yes. We met under very nice circumstances, and it was a true pleasure to meet you that day and to talk to you now. Well, thank you. I appreciate you donating your time to this podcast, because I know you are an in-demand individual with a very full schedule. Yeah. I wasn't even sure how to introduce you. Writer, editor, voice actor, podcaster, panelist? Well, what's weird, Ken, is I spend six days a week working as a social worker. So everything I do outside of that is mostly just because I love it, not really for money. I think I get paid by a couple of people, but I honestly don't even look at it. It just goes into a PayPal account somewhere and maybe I'll be rich someday. So I don't even really factor it into my finances. But uh, I think because I love doing stuff for fun, it doesn't feel like work, which makes me more likely to take on project after project after project. So yes, I still work for Destructo.com. I've been there for about eight years, I think, if I remember correctly, it was around 2009, 2008, I started there. I also write for Nintendo Force, which is a print magazine, comes out every other month, doing much better these days. We always did well, but since the Switch came out, I think we gained about 800 more subscribers since the, uh, the Switch was announced in full at a recent Nintendo Direct. Uh, so we're doing well there. And uh, I'm also working on a zine called Profound Waste of Time that was on Kickstarter. I think it made like something around twice as much as its uh, initial goals with no stretch goals at all. So that was great to see that do so well. Um, I'm writing for that and helping to bring in talent for it. So yeah, a lot of things. 
Rom 2064 recently came out. I uh, was kind of the uh, extra, the catch-all extra actor for that. I play a bouncer. I play a frozen yogurt salesman. I play a uh, couple of security guards. Really fun to get to do voice acting with that along with much bigger talents like uh, Jim Sterling was in that. My old friend uh, Zoe Quinn is a voice actress in that. Um, the same voice actress I'm blanking on her name all of a sudden, but she played Clementine in The Walking Dead. She's like the star of the game. She plays Turing, which is an advanced artificial intelligence robot. So you hear her talking constantly and she's just incredible. And then you cut over to me and I'm like, hey, got any ID? And I'm like, oh, snap. I just ruined the whole the quality was so high until I started talking. I just brought it down a uh, notch. Oh, you just just ruined the whole game. <laughs> yeah, though I'm yet to have anybody actually say that. I've been reaching out to people saying, hey, play the new version of uh, 2064, Read Only Memories, with all the voice acting. And they say, yeah, like anybody sucking it? And they're like, no, everyone's pretty good. <laughs> like Even like Bouncer B that you meet about, for you talk to for two minutes, uh, about an hour and a half into it. Oh no, Bouncer B was excellent. Uh, so yeah, I don't think I ruined it, except in my own head I did, because I'm very self-critical. So if you are a social worker by day, working six days a week in a field completely mm. unrelated to gaming, how did you get into all of this eight years ago, working for Destructoid? Yeah. What a fun question. Very rarely have I been asked that, because I don't talk about the social work thing. Very often, uh, those two lives are, are relatively separate, but I've always loved video games since I was, I want to say three, playing an Atari 2600 and first really understood them a little later when I was around four, looking at a Pac-Man arcade cabinet, just watching the demo, totally fascinated with all the potential possibilities that could occur with such a simple set of variables. It's just a Pac-Man, ghosts, and dots. And I was like, every game is different. This is amazing. So uh, from there, I've really been stuck on them and think about them every day, multiple hours a day. Uh, but it, when I was in my 20s, there wasn't really a video game blogger world that I knew of that was profitable. There was IGN, but it seemed very shadowy and you had to know someone to ever get a job there. I think back in those days at IGN, you even had to work in the area. I've spoken with some folks who had worked for IGN in the late 90s and they were on site office jobs. You had to show up because they didn't trust high-speed internet back then to to work. And there was no Gmail. There was no Google Docs. So it was uh, a lot more old-fashioned by today's standards anyway. So the idea of actually writing about video games was always a dream. I uh, subscribed to every video game magazine I could get my hands on growing up. Um, everyone I could afford, I should say, like Game Fan, EGM, uh, Nintendo Power. But I needed to be practical, and I love mental health. I love helping people. I love learning about who people are inside and out. So I ended up getting a master's degree in social work. And then right around then, I also started working at Destructoid. And if timing had happened just a little bit different, if I had started social work school just maybe a year later, I may have never gone at all and just gone full-time at Destructoid and ended up uh, probably in a very different place in life. But it's worked really well for me to probably spend, eh, I want to say, 25 to 30 hours a week on video game stuff, and then 40 to 50 hours a week on uh, day job stuff, 
and then spend maybe an hour a week just not doing anything. I don't think there are 25 hours a week outside one's day job, other than what you spend <laughs> sleeping. I mean, where? And oh, no, it's in there. There's, uh, what, 24 hours in a day? I'm not very good at math. But, yeah, I am always doing something. And I'm also a dad. I have a, a one-year-old at home, and I'm married and try to do things to make my family's life good, too. So not a job, just like how video game writing and uh, video game videos and such doesn't feel like work to me. But it's definitely something you have to take seriously and do well because other people's enjoyment uh, is at stake. So just like with family life, it's um, it's a responsibility and you want to do a good job at it, though it's not work, if that makes sense. After eight years at Destructoid, I assume you've been promoted multiple times. You must be editor-in-chief oh, yeah, by yeah. now. I was. I was editor-in-chief for a bit. That was a hoot. Uh, <laughs> it was not something I was ever seeking because it is – a ton of not writing about video games and a whole lot of worrying about the site's financials, the morale of the staff, the interpersonal relationships with the staff, the staff, uh, how they're uh, interacting with people outside of the, the site itself, uh, PR for the site, uh, relations with developers, relations with publishers. Yeah, that's not... I don't hate that stuff. It was it was not a bad time, but on top of a day job and um, at that point when I was editor in chief, my wife was pregnant, which is a whole other set of responsibilities. Like you need to do a lot of things your wife can't do because she suddenly has a giant stomach that's weighing her down, and uh, it's actually they teach you it's the stomach when you're a kid, Ken. But that's not actually where the baby goes. What? <laughs> I know. It's a whole other part. Uh, I think it's called the um, the un- unicorn? Yes. Uni- un- <laughs> it grows in, the, grows in the unicorn. And then <laughs> gets out of the unicorn, goes back into her stomach, then comes out. It's great. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, you got it. That's uh, sex ed from me. Uh, right. So being editor in chief was an adventure, but a lot of stress. And around the time my son was about to be born, I let the staff know I really didn't think I could juggle all of those balls at the same time. So I retired, but kept writing for the site because that's what I always loved most anyway. So, so still writing for Destructoid, um, about once a week, some weeks are heavier than others. They got a full staff anyway, but they like keeping me around and I'll be there as long as they'll have me. So Still in there for fun. Having been in the magazine industry, I find it unusual for an editor-in-chief to no longer be editor-in-chief, but still be on the staff. Well, yeah, that uh, that brings me to a larger topic that we'll be talking about at PAX East on that panel that you have planned. Very exciting. I think it's uh, plus one to journalism, or is it journalism plus one? Plus one to journalism, which is Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. I think we might be the last panel of the weekend. Oh, neat. I had it right the first time, too. I'm proud of myself. Uh, <laughs> Destructoid, whether we're journalists or not, it has always been a big question. I'll probably end up talking about this on the panel, and I'm sorry if I sound repetitive, but have you seen the movie? Uh, it was There was two plague movies that came out right around the same time. You know how like how Bugs Life and Ants, Ants came yeah. out around the same time and A Shark's Tale and Deep Impact and What was the other one? That other asteroid movie? Yeah, Armageddon, I think. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they were doing that all the time. There were two plague movies that came out. One of them had Matt Damon in it and he just sits around and 
is worried that he's going to get his daughter sick and then he just doesn't. And then they hang out at the end. That's his whole storyline. Uh, but Elliot Gould, who was a personality I was always fascinated with as a kid. He's not too famous anymore, but he was this weird kind of intellectual comedian slash actor from the 70s. Um, he has a line in this movie starring Matt Damon about plagues where he's talking about bloggers to Jude Law. And he says to Jude Law, a blogger isn't a journalist. A blogger is graffiti with punctuation. And I was like, that's exactly right. Wow, you nailed it. Because <laughs> like we're sort of – we're writers and we have a journal that we're filling in what happened that day. We report on things. We, we're not the press exactly because – well, the magazine actually, I guess those get pressed somewhere or printed anyway. Um but are we journalists in the strict sense of the term? And some people destructoid have called themselves journalists and wrote it right on their uh, business card. Other of us, uh, others of us, uh, others among us, I should say, uh, reject the term wholeheartedly. And Jim Sterling, who's one of the most successful people to come out of destructoid, he mocks the very idea of journalism in his show, The Jimquisition, as part of the opening role, the opening text. Uh, calls it, I think, Garm Jarmalism. I never get it right. So, yeah, it's a really weird topic in general. And uh, what people think about it often says a lot about how they feel about themselves, I find. Being a better journalist is something I can certainly give advice about, but a lot of it will be don't do what I do style advice. And speaking of which, some would say don't keep writing for the site that you retire from because it makes the site look weird. It makes you look weird. Nobody knows exactly where you fit after you've reached the height of being there, which would be the editor in chief to then like demote yourself and continue to write there for it was about a year and a half ago now. Yeah. What does that say about journalism? What does that say about the editor in chief position and whether it was desirable in the first place? Does it make you look like uh, you were fired, but they kept you and kicked you around, which a lot of people theorized. Uh, a lot of Gamergate folks were sure that I left the editor in chief position because of whatever scandal they thought uh, was important at the time. They, they decided I was a bad writer and said that's why they fired him. And to that, I can now always counter like, well, wouldn't they really fire me then instead of like, let me write forever and just really write whatever I want for Destructoid. I have full creative freedom there. So, uh, yeah, whole journalism concept. Ken, I've talked so much. I'd love to get your opinion about it as it fits in entertainment, in the entertainment field and video games specifically. The split between those who see themselves as journalists and those who see themselves as just personalities. Like, is PewDiePie a journalist? He talks about what's new sometimes, and he's got a huge audience. He considers himself at least rivals with the Wall Street Journal, according to recent statements he's made, where he feels as though the uh, Wall Street Journal is, like, wronging him and feels competitive against him and, like, wants to knock him down because they don't like new media. Um, this is after he made a bunch of jokes that contained anti-Semitic imagery and statements that he didn't really mean, he's saying, it was a joke. Uh, but the Wall Street Journal, uh, very upset with him, or at least very judging of him from his perspective. Whereas the Wall Street Journal just says, no, you were anti-Semitic and we showed it. That's it. That's what a journalist does. They just show what happened. But he's taken it very personally and people are saying they don't even like journalists anymore. They just want everybody to be a media personality because that's who you can trust. 
So is being a journalist a badge of shame these days? We can talk about this on a whole panel if you wanted, because there's so much to say about it. I think we should. I think that would be wonderful. And you recently wrote about this whole PewDiePie event for Destructoid. Yeah, I did. Is he going to come after you after the Wall Street Journal? That's a good question. I'm looking at the website now. I uh, I had yesterday, it was around 11 o'clock. I had a longtime friend coming over at 12. So I had like an hour. I'm like, what should I do? I have to work, I guess. Because I just can't think of anything else to do when I have free time these days. Uh, when that's all you know, that's all you're comfortable with. So I said, I guess I'll write about this PewDiePie thing that happened a few days ago. Um, no one else had gotten to it on staff. And um, I haven't looked at the comments yet because that's a whole time sink. That's If you take comments seriously like I tend to, you don't want to just skim them and look for the ones that criticize you or the ones that praise you. You want to give them all equal weight. But once a story gets up to 500 comments in like four hours or something, after you're done hanging around with your friends and feeding your family and stuff, you come back to the internet and see that it's an avalanche. It's hard to even want to get started. It's at 601 comments right now, and who knows what they said. They probably they probably liked it and also didn't like it, and there's probably people saying I should be fired and other people saying I should be promoted again. It's just such a sea of thoughts. It always reminds me of in the X-Men comics when they show the psychic characters like being overwhelmed with all the stuff they can think because there's all these words all over the page and they can't parse out what the thoughts they want to read from other people. That's how I feel when I have to read those comment sections. So usually put it off for a little bit until I have some bandwidth to handle it. But yeah, I wrote about how PewDiePie is really stoking the flames of this conflict between him and the Wall Street Journal, how he has just a loud of, as loud a voice as the Wall Street Journal. So I don't feel like he has to worry about the Wall Street Journal altering people's perception of him and him having no control to write that perception and make it accurate again because uh, he has a huge voice. He's got, I can't remember, 50 million subscribers or something like that. Um, I don't think he's bigger than the Wall Street Journal, but for the people who are interested in what he does anyway, he's probably more well-known and well-read than the Wall Street Journal. People who don't care about him are never going to care about him regardless of what the Wall Street Journal says. But he was very upset. I think he's crying at one point in the video and uh, giving the Wall Street Journal the middle finger and saying he hates the entire media because they didn't talk about how cool his story is, how it's so great that a YouTuber has become a millionaire. Uh, instead, they only talk about how much money he makes and kind of seem threatened by him because he's so huge and uh, he's just a regular guy. He keeps saying in the video, I don't even care about the money. Which to me is always funny because I say that too, but I actually mean it. Uh, and I have another job and I don't need the money that comes in from video game blogging. And it's not a lot. Like yeah, it's not millions of dollars. I can tell you that. Whereas if I was making $7 million a year as PewDiePie does, I probably wouldn't try to maintain the everyman image anymore because – it would just be dishonest. I feel like he's either being dishonest with himself or with his fans or both when he says, oh, it's just a hobby. I just do this for fun. Sure, there's money, I guess, but I don't really pay attention to it. If he had another job on top of it all and he just did it on his off hours, then sure. But but this is a full-time thing. And it was – his image means a whole lot to him as much as he may try to speak the contrary. 
And it was discouraging to me to see him stoking the flames of this everyman versus the media uh, journalists versus YouTubers thing that probably gets better numbers for everybody involved. Like I'm sure the Wall Street Journal has a lot more people reading it who had never really cared about it before because they're mad at them because of what they said about PewDiePie. And likewise, more people are paying attention to PewDiePie, and he hadn't had a whole lot of high-profile stuff going on in the past year or so since he started that show on YouTube Red, which didn't do very well, which is part of why it got dropped, I bet. But, but yeah, they're stoking the, the flames of a conflict that I don't think is genuine. I don't think it's helpful for people to read into a conflict that's not actually there. And it's painful because it's distracting from a lot of actually interesting and or useful things to be focusing on, like good new video games and developer interviews and actual stuff in politics, which is a problem as opposed to this, which is really not important. And yet here I am talking about it for so long. The irony doesn't (laughs) escape me. Uh, it, It emotionally resonates a lot in this whole thing. But I know it's uh, junk food for the mind to focus on for this long. And yet here I am crunching on another muncho of PewDiePie. Well, you mentioned Gamergate earlier and their whole thing is a bias in journalism and a lack Uh, of ethics. And isn't that what PewDiePie is trying to expose? Huh. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, he was called unethical in so many words by the Wall Street Journal for normalizing Nazi imagery. And he I don't know if you know the full story, but he paid uh, some people to hold up a sign that said death to all Jews and then started laughing hysterically, which most people would at least see how that can be taken as normalizing the statement death to all Jews. If you're instead of being horrified by it and saying, oh, my God, this is what ended up killing millions of people, um, uh, that kind of thinking. If instead you're laughing about it and saying, oh, that's so inappropriate. Some would say that's kind of unethical. Um, PewDiePie, on the other hand, is saying that because they took all that stuff out of context and didn't like painstakingly write in their article, oh, but he was joking. We know he was joking. We know he's intent. He didn't mean this as a true anti-Semitic statement, but it, it could look that way because they didn't fill in all that context. He's calling them personal uh, enemies of him. He feels he's being personally hounded and attacked and misinterpreted or misrepresented on on purpose. So um, I don't know. I don't think the Wall Street Journal did anything unethical. Um, I think that if PewDiePie were an unknown commodity, commodity where it was impossible to find out the rest of the context yourself, then sure, that would be potential libel or slander. And I suppose you can sue them for what they've done, libel, slander suits, and potentially win. But um, I think it was sort of crappy reporting uh, on on one hand, what they did. They could have done a little bit more to fill in the blanks, but they're not interested in PewDiePie and his blanks, I don't think. And they don't think their readers are either. So they, they stuck to what their audience likes, which is exactly what PewDiePie was doing. So uh, for either of them to accuse the other of much, I think is going to verge into hypocrisy territory because the Wall Street Journal didn't do anything all that different than what PewDiePie did, which is leaving out a lot of the context of the Wall Street Journal story and um, and making it about his image and kind of avoiding the fact that he may be doing more harm than he wants to admit to. 
he apologized in his video, but also spent a whole lot of time talking about how he deserves more credit and how he does things for his audience and his audience gets it. And he actually didn't really do anything wrong and then flips people off and stuff. So, so yeah, that's my take on it, Ken. What do you think? I'm curious. You obviously spend a lot of time thinking about these things at a more than passing level. You Mm. engage in this stuff, you report on it, being a member of the press yourself. Is this your beat? I mean, do you just write game reviews or do you engage in the the real ethical issues that plague our community? I forgot you barely know me, Ken. You know me, but you don't. And uh, your listeners, even if you do know the answer to this question, your listeners might not. So that's very good interviewing. (laughs) Uh, you're buttering me up sir (laughs) i'm just keeping it real that's how i see it um a lot of people at destructoid don't want to touch these stories with a 10-foot pole uh so as editor-in-chief i thought it was important for us to maintain our voice in the larger conversation about it just so people know that we care about the the larger gaming community and we have opinions about it just like them and uh to kind of run away from that out of fear that we may be disliked or we may accidentally insult somebody number one that's not very interesting number two that's not what destructoid was based around like before there were all these bad boy youtubers like pewdiepie and john tron and what have you uh destructoid was definitely this kind of chaotic anything goes unprofessional shoot from the hip we love video games first and then we talk about them and then we think about whether we said the right thing or not way after the fact site that's really what it was based around and pros and cons to that we got a lot of really angry negative voices on the site at times and uh that were really thrilled to reject the whole idea of professionalism and then we had some other people who just wanted to gush about how much they love video games even though they know that's not professional and that's not cool to write about like how you're madly in love with Final Fantasy VI and how it saved your life when you're really depressed and you were contemplating suicide and all that stuff. These are all editorials that we were willing to host where you probably wouldn't see that on IGN or whatever. So yeah, being a honest, potentially misfit voice, I guess you could say, was Destructoid's start. And um, as we've gotten bigger... And as we've gotten more respected by big publishers and as we've gotten to the point where people can really, really hate us and dox us and try to steal our credit card information, that's happened to me several times when I'll write a story that ends up uh, alienating or angering a lot of people, which is never my goal. But when you're honest, you're going to end up um, you're going to end up bothering some people. Uh, So, yeah. It's, it's dangerous to write about video games a lot of the time. It can really come back to bite you. But what's the point of doing it if you're not going to really show who you are in the process? Because in the long run, I'll be long dead, but everything I've written on Destructoid will, will last beyond me. And hopefully at least some of it is a accurate reflection of what kind of person I am and what I thought about these things that mean a lot to me. So, so yeah, my beat. I mostly write about uh, Nintendo news because nobody else wants to, or at least a lot of times people don't want to. Uh, I'll do these uh, more touchy subject. I'll write about Gamergate. Um, I'll write about people who are supporting Gamergate, like porn stars every once in a while. I think I wrote about one of them uh, years ago. 
She seemed nice. We had a little interview. Um, I interviewed RuPaul once because I don't think anyone else really wanted to. That was a fun interview. You did that for Destructoid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, RuPaul was putting out a game uh, that was kind of like pinball except with drag queens. And I think there was a customizable aspect to it. It's a couple years ago now. So I was like, I'd love to talk about that with RuPaul and, and what RuPaul thinks of all this stuff going on in the video game industry today. And um, I believe RuPaul talked about Sonic the Hedgehog for a bit, <laughs> which was a fun surprise for okay. me. Yeah, yeah. I've interviewed, um, geez, what was his name? can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Danny Trejo, when he was, and he was so drunk. He was advertising a game he was in. And I was like, Danny Trejo, why are you in a video game? That was a lot of fun. Uh, recently interviewed uh, Yoshiro Kimura, who worked on No More Heroes and Rule of Rose, which is a game about really creepy um, preteen girls. He has a new game called Dandy Dungeon Out. Like, no one cares who he is. Uh, he's not a, a brand name, but I think he's uh, fascinating. So. We did a three-post interview about that, and that helped up his profile a little bit, which is good. But mostly I wanted it to be out there so um, the people who already care about him could see him represented and people who are as interested in him as I am could read about what he had to say. So, so yeah, um, I do a lot of the stuff nobody else wants to do now that I'm talking about it with you. I see that, which is, uh, I guess, not that surprising. Why don't other people want to write about Nintendo, especially with the Switch right around the corner? Yeah, I know. Um, they do want to write about the switch and as such, I don't think I've written one switch story, but they don't care as much about, um, like right now I haven't written about any Nintendo stuff for the site other than, uh, no more hero story that people didn't care about. No, everyone knows no more heroes, but like it actually didn't sell that well, I guess. But yeah, it's, um, there were times, especially during the Wii era when I first started Instructoid where, there was another one of these fake conflicts that was brewed up between casual and hardcore gamers. So much of these conflicts, the same as with the the press versus the everyman conflict that's going on, it's just people wanting to oversimplify a situation and feel good about themselves by beating up on somebody else. Always depresses me. But yeah, during the Wii and DS era, I wrote about Nintendo a lot because nobody else wanted to touch those stories with a 10-foot pole. What's his name? He was... Almost Indiana Jones, but then they decided not to. Shia LaBeouf. Oh, dear. Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> yeah, Shia LaBeouf came out and was like, the Wii is for wimps. Nobody's truly hardcore plays the Wii. And uh, that, like, actually went a long way. People really echoed that and, and um, talked about how much they hate Nintendo after that. But I, I thought the Wii was a lot of fun. I had a ton of games on there that were really offbeat and unusual surprising daring i could even say that uh weren't on the other consoles because their install bases weren't as big so i ended up writing about a lot of those back in the day and hopefully we'll continue to moving forward hopefully those games will still be coming out as far as writing about more volatile topics like gamergate i i can talk about that stuff on polygamer and they don't tend to come after me a because podcasts are harder to consume than written content and b because mm. i'm a straight white cisgender dude and that's not their target audience do you, <laughs> do you feel safe writing about gamergate uh no definitely not it's um something that like i've been lucky thus far every time i've written about gamergate and then 
like a day later, my credit card information gets compromised. My bank has always hatched me, helped me catch it, my debit card, I should say. They've tried to hack my Steam account. They've never, um, the one time they tried to get me fired from one of my social work day jobs, but that was a little bit more complicated than that. But I have a really good relationship with my bosses at my job, so they didn't fire me, even though Gamergate claimed I was unethical and was like abusing people and stuff. So um, it's not safe to write about Gamergate at all. It is um, a hashtag that attracts people who just want a signal boost and have a conversation about ethics and gaming journalism. And it also attracts a lot of people who define themselves by their ability to do damage to whoever they decided is their enemy at that time, be it women, be it um, uh, progressives, be it people who uh, have a different opinion than them about Pokemon, like the list goes on, uh, who may lob onto Gamergate because it's known to be a vessel for hurting other people. There's a lot of people that like that about Gamergate, almost chiefly. The whole uh, fuck your feelings crowd who just wants to like make people who feel things feel worse. Ugh, that's sad. It's not all the people uh, who have lobbed onto Gamergate, but it is most of the people who have been there from the start because it was initially just a way to witch hunt Zoe Quinn, who has been proven to not have done the things that Gamergate was accusing of her in the first place, but there's no arguing with them about that, unfortunately. So yeah, it's not safe. I was, um, before Gamergate even started, I was put on a list that was floating around uh, on the chans and Reddit and whatnot of social justice warrior gaming journalists to avoid. And like by no coincidence, almost everyone on the list was uh, a woman or a minority or both. And um, I'm not the whitest guy in the world, but I'm not easy to identify what my race is, which is always kind of fun for me. Because uh, much like how what people tell you what they think about journalism and if they are a journalist says a lot about them, what people think my race is often says a lot about them too. Like I'll go to a, a gas station and the gas station will be run by people from Iraq, for instance, and they'll think I'm Iraqi, which is like a huge compliment and start speaking to me in Arabic. I'm like, I don't speak that. They're like, yeah, you do. Don't try to hide it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta keep it real i'm like i'm sorry i really don't know arabic i'll go to a portuguese neighborhood people will start speaking portuguese to me i'll go to a spanish neighborhood so um yeah and likewise people who really don't like anyone who's not white are really sure i'm not white and hate me a lot and i'll be called all sorts of racial slurs and whatnot then other people will be like you're totally white what are you talking about and those are people who often don't think about race a whole lot or just think I look white. So um, that's been really from the start that I've had to juggle the racial ambiguity and what it brings out in people. Um, but the the calm before the storm, which wasn't all that calm with people uh, starting to hate progressives in gaming journalism or the gaming press, gaming blogs, before Gamergate really brought it all to a head, um, I saw it coming when that list went around that I was a social justice warrior for really I, I no reason. Like if anything, um, I maybe was too frequent to, to uh, advocate for people not looking at characters like Juliet Starling from Lollipop Chainsaw, who was played by Jessica Negri, a uh, professional cosplayer. She and I did a video together about how 
Like you shouldn't judge a woman by uh, the way she's dressed. And if she wants to dress sexually provocatively, you shouldn't say she's encouraging sexism. It's more complicated than that, of course. Um, but when it's a, a woman owning the uh, experience and she's doing it for herself, it's not the same kind of sexual objectification that I think can make things like the Dead or Alive series of fighting games problematic because they've um, just actively promote like beating a woman. <laughs> those can be bad. I don't know if you've played those. Uh, but anyway, uh, I thought that I was not someone who seemed like they were just speaking a dogma of strict, this is always sexist, this is always not sexist, because uh, it's never that simple. What's problematic for a 12-year-old girl won't be problematic for a 40-year-old guy. It all depends on how it's going to affect them and and fit into their life. Uh, but yeah, I got put on the list, and they've been after me off and on and ever since. Um, lately, I don't think they really care anymore. They've all moved on to just being... Trump supporters and don't even really think about video games as much. But but for a while there, pre-Trump, the, we were definitely the focal point of their negative attention. And I can understand why some journalists would feel the need to not only endure that harassment, but take a stand against it by writing about these topics because it is their chosen profession, it is their livelihood. But with mm. you, you could... Uh, as this gets more and more difficult to be a part of, at any given time, you could walk away from it with very little impact to your bottom line. So why mm. why stick with it? Uh, I really love the people involved. Uh, I love the gaming community and what it can be at its best. When the gaming community is a place where people embrace the abstract and treat creative expressions made by game developers like they're real, like they're that important and, and talk about them with other people about what do you think this game is? How did this game make you feel? What do you want to do when you make a game someday? That's all so wonderful and exciting. I would never want to abandon that. That's probably my favorite thing about being involved in video game culture in any way is the excitement and the, the real emotion that people can feel based off of, a bunch of colors and lights and pressing buttons. Like it's incredible that video games have have that power. Um, but anything that has the power to enlighten and and strengthen people's character and and make their lives and relationships better can also have the power to uh, make them worse. It can uh, influence them to join aspects of video game culture that define themselves by being negative, define themselves by being insensitive and cruel and whatnot. And um, it, it's been weird to see the culture wars in video games go from Sega against Nintendo and then hardcore versus casual to now like pro-social versus anti-social or pro-social justice versus anti-social justice. Now that the stakes are higher than ever, now would be the last time I'd want to drop out just because there's a little bit more in the way of emotional or, or even criminal risk. Um, the fact that the stakes are higher only makes me want to stay in it more, I guess, and makes me more likely to write the stories that other people just don't want to bother with because it's too much emotional or potential like logistical work to have your credit card numbers changed and all that stuff after they come after you. So yeah, um, I'm 40, just turned 40 in December, and I really don't see myself dropping out of this anytime soon. I'm going to change the way I go about things. I don't do as many videos or podcasts as I used to because 
I don't really want to look at myself anymore. Gosh darn it. I don't know what happened. Age really catches up on you fast. And it's just, it's more work. It's a lot easier for me to, in an off hour here and there, I can, I can write an article at two o'clock in the morning when I look like crap and uh, my voice is all hoarse from dehydration. I don't have to like set up lights and sound and stuff like that. So I'm doing less podcasts, but I, I don't see myself dropping out of this anytime soon. On the contrary, you seem to be doubling down with more and more credits to your name, not only Destructoid, but Nintendo Force, a profound waste of time. Is there any conflict of interest in writing for so many publications? Oh, maybe. You tell me. I hadn't thought about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one's brought it up. Profound waste of time, for instance... It started in the Destructoid community. That's a zine being run by a name name a guy named Caspian uh, Whistler, wonderful young man who grew up on Destructoid. Like he's telling me, I was watching your videos when I was 14, and I always wanted to be like you someday. And now he's in his early 20s, out of university. And uh, so many of the people who are on Destructoid five, six years ago, like Ashley and Anthony Birch and Jim Sterling and stuff, were were a big part of his life. And he's always wanted to try to capture the way we helped him feel with his own work. So he wanted to put together this zine that in, uh, takes video game developers and also people who write about video games and just your, your average person get their stories about the emotional impact video games have had on them. So, so yeah, he it started as maybe going to be a Destructoid project and then talking about it, it was different enough than what Destructoid is today that I advised him to put it under his own brand. Realistically, I also thought sites like Kotaku wouldn't write about it if it was Destructoid branded because that's like writing about their competition favorably. And lo and behold, Kotaku did write about the the scene and it really helped to get out there because they've got way bigger numbers than destructoid so so yeah hopefully that's not a conflict of interest because i'm not getting paid like caspian has insisted that i will get paid but i've just said no so i have no idea if he's just going to force me to take money one of these days but but as of yet i'm doing it all for free because i like it those those are the kinds of conflicts of interest i worry about uh, which is why it also makes it easier when you don't do it, any of it for money because you don't have to worry about greed getting the best of you at some point and and saying something good about a game just so you can get paid more or um, you know only writing about the stories that are going to get you more hits so you can get more money and stuff like that. Not worrying about that definitely makes it more fun and helps you sleep better at night. But yeah, I don't think... I wrote about Nintendo Force a couple of times on Destructoid. I guess people might think that looks like self-advertising. And if so, I hope they tell me they think that. I didn't think it was. I just thought we were doing some cool stuff. We were doing an interview with uh, the creators of the BitTrip series, and they were going to announce a new character in the in our magazine. So I like wanted people to know in case they were interested. I guess I don't think reporting and advertising have that much in common, but I certainly see how they could. And if anyone thinks that I... I'm unethical. Please tell me. I'm always up for that conversation. Like you can. Do you think I'm unethical? Am I bad? Absolutely. <laughs> You're the worst. You're the worst, Jonathan. I always thought it might be true, but now you've confirmed it. I Everything you say can and will be used against you. This is on the <laughs> it's, record. It's happened. There's a, You probably know this already. There's a site that uh, I wrote about on Destructoid, so I gave them some, some press. I gave them some attention. But um, I also kind of made fun of them. 
that's when people, oh, I'm so glad that I got to this point where I'm talking about how I suck and I know it. The reason why a lot of people hate the press, Ken, hate the media, isn't because we lie, isn't because we're unethical. It's because we're taught from the very start, like whether you're a blogger or you work for a newspaper or whatever, you're taught to have a strong, confident voice, but to also not get overly personal because then you make it about you and then uh, you you don't leave place for the, the viewer to um, insert themselves or the reader to insert themselves. And you also just sound like an egomaniac when you write about yourself the whole time. Um, but all of those things also make you seem like a snob when you, instead of saying like, this game fucking sucks and I hate everybody who plays it, uh, like how you might see in the comments when you say, this game could be better crafted, but I'm sure some people like it. I just don't happen to be one of those people. They're like, you passive aggressive prick. You think you're so cool, not swearing and not getting overtly pissed off about video games. You're holding back so much, but it's clear you have a negative opinion, but you don't really want to say it. That's why people hate me more than anything. I've been told that for years, that I sound passive aggressive when I write. And I hate it. I wish I didn't. But um, that's just my style at this point. Then those very same people meet me at an event and uh, say, you don't seem passive aggressive. You seem like actually... Like you care what I think and that you don't think you're God's gift just because you happen to write for a video game blog, which I really don't. So, yeah, I'm bad at writing in a way that doesn't make me sound like I secretly think I'm the best. Maybe I'll get better at that one of these days. But, yeah, I was rambling on about how they made a website that is just dedicated to pointing out how bad video game journalists are and how we're all unethical. And you get like a little stamp for like if you lied or if you secretly uh, knew a video game developer outside of um, what you wrote about. Like if you met them at a convention once and like gave them a hug, then you should have reported that. You should have done disclosure of prior hugs in the past or whatever. It's called um, – I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, I wrote about it and I was a little sassy about it. I called it like the uh, Pokédex – of hating video game journalists because it like cataloged us and gave us all different types. Like instead of rock and fire type, it gave us like lying and um, nice type, like too nice to people. I can't remember, Uh, which was too sassy. I was passive aggressive and sassy, I bet. And I didn't realize it. Um, They really hated me after that. Though the creator of the website likes me just fine. We, We chat here and there on Twitter, but all the readers really were, were ticked off at me about that. And I felt bad, but what can you do? You said that journalists are taught to have a confident voice, yet not write about themselves, but you were taught to be a social worker. So mm. where does your journalism come from? Oh, yeah. where did, well, I, I don't know if I have journalism, but if it comes from anywhere, <laughs> it comes from being aware that what you do will affect other people. That's kind of the intersection of socialism. I'm I'm a socialist. Secret progressive socialist. Uh, That's the intersection of social work and writing about video games, video game, blogging, journalism, whatever you want to call it. Because it's all about interacting with people. It's all about communication. It's all about trying to be honest and present with who you are while also being considerate to the experience of the other person. So... Yeah, I really am interested in other people. I can find out about other people through playing a video game that they made. 
Like when I play a Suda 51 game and then I talk to Suda 51, it feels like there's barely a wall there. Like playing one of his games and hanging out with him feels very, very similar. So um, I do believe video games are a way you can get to know the developers of those games in a pretty intimate way. And social work, I also get to know people in an intimate way. And I have to treat them with respect just like I need to treat video game developers, video game fans, uh, video game publishers with the same kind of respect. So so I try to do that, though it is very different when you're doing social work and talking about somebody's abuse history versus voicing your opinion about the new Call of Duty. Like hopefully I can be a little bit more brash and a little bit more um, – more. I don't want to say insensitive, but I guess that's the best word for it. Hopefully I can be a little more insensitive when talking about something that's really not that important in the grand scheme, like how good the new Call of Duty is versus talking to somebody about their abuse history. But but I'm still figuring it out. Um, I'm totally open to the idea that my tone is all wrong and that I'm really bad at journalizing and need to bone up on it. Um, all I can do is share with people what I've been through and what I've seen and hopefully – that helps them and and in turn could help me based on the feedback I get from them after I share that. Do you ever use video games in your day job to connect with people hmm. or to get them to open up? Sure, sure. Actually, for a profound waste of time, the original version of that, which was never sold, it was a project that Caspian did for uh, his university finals in, in the UK is where he lives. I wrote a story about how a girl I was dating – would not tell me how she felt about me unless she was playing Animal Crossing at the same time. Like when she was hanging out with me, she was super self-conscious, planning her every move, thinking about who she was and wanting to be the person that she thought would be the best person in that situation. But when she was playing Animal Crossing, she wasn't thinking about herself. She was thinking about the character on screen and what that character was doing and how to be the best character in the game. So it really loosened her up. And she would tell me she loved me when she was playing Animal Crossing. Then she'd stop playing and be like, I can't tell you how I feel about you. I'm like, remember you told me you loved me once. You were, you were like digging up fossils at the time. Uh, so in my personal life, video games have definitely been a way to connect with people in a social lubricant. And in my professional life, uh, particularly with behaviorally challenged teenagers, I, I did a job for a bit with really angry kids really loved violent video games, really needed an outlet for their powerlessness and aggression. And it almost always came in the form of, at the time, Grand Theft Auto 4 was really popular, if I remember correctly. And some of these kids I'd show Resident Evil 4, which they never played, and showed them how violence can be disturbing and scary and how they may be making other people feel when they get in a group of their friends and dogpile on one kid that they're bullying, the way they feel when they're suddenly surrounded by all of the the evil villagers in Resident Evil 4. And one kid said he started crying about it. He he never played a game like that. And I probably shouldn't have been giving him an M-rated game because I think he was like 17, but close enough. Um, he was like, I had no idea that I could make people feel that afraid. Uh, and when you play Grand Theft Auto, no one's afraid. You, you punch somebody in the face and they say, hey, don't do that. And then you just steal their car and they're like, damn it, you jerk. Like they're, they're <laughs> the Grand Theft Auto series is like the most anti-empathy um, genre defining series going today. It, it brought up all these anti-empathy games and anti-empathy movements in gaming. 
bubbled up around it in my opinion but um but yeah the the very same types of games m-rated violent games can be flipped and used to help people understand empathy and to take violence more seriously Wow. I, again, you've given this a lot of thought. And through your writing, your podcast, your videos, you mentioned that you're doing less of the multimedia these days. Mm. But you did also say that you just did some voice acting for Read Only Memories. Was that your first voice acting gig? Yeah. Thank you for remembering that. Uh, uh, Read Only Memories was not my first voice acting gig for a game. And it was not my first professional voice acting gig but it was my first professional voice acting gig for a game so i had done some voice acting here and there for games upon request just for free i I voiced myself in a game called lisa the painful rpg which is another game that's really graphic and disturbing but is supposed to teach people about empathy and sadly that uh, game has really been adored by white supremacists and the creator of the game is just mortified by that but just goes to show that you can control what you make, but you can't control how it's received and the audience you build around it. But yeah, I did some voice acting for that. I did voice acting for a cartoon I did for Machinima years ago called Teenage Pokemon, which I've really mixed feelings about now. Oof, I was really just flying by the sleeve of my pants on that. I did not think that one through. But I managed to get it made. I produced the whole thing. I got the animators on board. I had to like manage them and make sure that they met their milestones i did all the writing and the most of the voice acting like 95 percent of the voice acting and there's like 15 different characters in the show so i had to voice all these different characters uh but then the show turned out to be a total mess like tonally it goes between just being awful to being like insightful sometimes and then other times legitimately funny and then corny funny like i needed a producer to tell me to pick a tone and, and run with it but that's not how it happened i I made most of it. Uh, I wrote it while driving to work, and I did all the voice acting when I got home with a blanket over my head alone <laughs> in my living room after my wife went to bed. And I just tried not to be too loud. So it was a real, uh, real homemade project that ended up getting millions of views. Uh, who knows why things get popular? I still can't figure it out. But yeah, the, uh, the Read Only Memories folks seem to like me enough as a personality, like I'd never met them. I, at least I don't think so, but they'd followed Sup Holmes, which is a show I did about game developers. And I, they liked some of my podcasts I did with Jim Sterling. So they went out of their way to give me like five different roles. Um, and I really tried my hardest. And I again said, don't pay me. And they insisted. I think they paid me like a hundred bucks for uh, four or five hours worth of work or something. So, um, it was a lot of fun. It is so weird to turn on your PlayStation 4 and hear your voice, even for a split second, talking like, like one character I decided should talk like, oh, why are you going in there? Ooh. <laughs> so there's regrets <laughs> attached to it. Like, why did I do that? Why didn't they stop me? But yeah, I don't know. I've watched some Let's Plays of people um, checking the game out. And when they get to that character, almost everybody imitates them right afterwards. They like can't believe uh, this relatively serious sounding game suddenly has that guy in it, and they all start going "ooh" after. <laughs> Maybe I did something right. I don't know. Still trying to figure that out. I'm sure you must have done many things right. Is that something you want to do again? Is voice acting in a video game? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really hard. It, it's it's something that 
if people want me to do it for free and they don't mind it coming out the way it came out in read only memories, absolutely. And I'm not, I enjoy the work of it. Like those four or five hours, there's not four or five hours of my actual voice acting in the game. Thank God. There was multiple takes. I did each line at least four or five times. And then I think we had to re-record the whole thing at one point. So uh, I'm willing to put in the work and I'll do it for free because it's really fun. But as soon as people start paying me for it, then it doesn't become fun anymore. Then it becomes like, um, then it becomes something larger than doing it for the love of it. And I don't want that to happen. So I don't see myself pursuing it professionally. And it's also just such a cutthroat, scary time. Like I've got to provide for my wife and son. I can't drop my day job and just practice voice acting all the time and on a hope and a prayer uh, imagine myself ever making as much money I do now from social work. So yeah, in terms of being responsible, it wouldn't be the right move either. But but once I retire and I've got nothing else to do, I'm totally just going to to do as much video game stuff as I possibly can including voice acting. That'll that'll be really fun in 30 years or so. Well, you said that you are comfortable not getting paid, and at times you even prefer it, or at least not making a lot. But mm. I've attended PAX East panels where editors say to not volunteer services for free because that indicates you have no stake in the game. You have no skin mm. in the game. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, yeah. And so by indicating that you, in, you want to get paid, what you're really saying is, I promise to do my best and to earn what you're going to give me. Yeah, I wish that were true. <laughs> when I was editor-in-chief... I don't want to name names, but there was at least one staff member who was salaried who just stopped writing for us for two weeks. And we were like, where'd you go? And they were like, I was really busy. I'm like, but you can't just not show up to your salary job for two weeks with no no notice. I thought it was me. I thought that uh, that this person had told somebody at some point because uh, I was, you know, relatively high up. I was as high up as you get beside the owner of Destructoid, uh, Yanir Gonzalez. I thought they had just they must have told somebody, but they didn't. And then when I confronted them and said, you're salaried, you can't do that. We're going to have to drop your salary and just pay you by the post, I guess. A total meltdown happened. And to, to long story short, they left the site shortly after that. So so, yeah, I wish that paying people was a guarantee that they were going to take it seriously and that you were showing them that they were valued or not valued. But it's really a case-by-case situation with people. Some people feel much more comfortable and put out their best work when they're not getting paid. Other people feel devalued and demoralized if they're not paid. And as a boss, you've got to meet those people where they're at and and help bring out their best work. And that's probably going to involve paying them. But not necessarily. It's a, it's a conversation you have to have with them as an individual, I think. So you've written for Destructoid, Nintendo Force, or Profound Waste of Time. You've been in Read-Only Memories 2064. You are a man who is in demand, and that includes at the upcoming PAX East, which is at the time of this airing, occurring in just a few days. You and I are going to be on a panel that you mentioned called Plus One to Journalism. We're going to talk about how to be a better writer. But there are other panels you're going to be on as well. Is that right? Yeah, I'm going to be on a bunch of panels this year. I figured I would get the most panel requests when I was editor-in-chief of Destructoid, but in fact, the thing you want to do if you want to get on panels is don't be important anymore. Just be a random dude who has done stuff and sort of does stuff still, but is no longer uh, the big cheese 
That's my advice to you people listening. I am on a panel on Friday at 3.30 p.m. with the great Will Brierly, creator of Soda Drinker Pro, as well as Vinny Sauce, who's a, a streamer, Sean Baptiste, formerly of Harmonix, now at Adult Swim, and Nick Murdy at Harmonix, currently at Harmonix. And that is a panel moderated by AI. It is going to be unlike any other panel ever conducted at PAX or anywhere else. It is it is a surprise, uh, a nonstop surprise, and a real mess and a true delight. I'm confident that you will enjoy it if you come on Friday at 3.30, and that is at the Condor Theater. Uh, also on a panel with some really good developers, Mark Essen, creator of Nidhogg, uh, Mark, Mike Herbaster, who is a level designer on Shovel Knight, and a bunch of other folks on Saturday at 2.30 at the Arachnid Theater. That is a panel called Going Retro in 2017, The Challenges of Yesterday and Today. Not really sure why the person running this panel, Richard James Cook, great guy. He's working on a new game that's like a parody and tribute to Mortal Kombat. Really interesting stuff. He asked me to be on it. I'm like, why me? I don't make video games. And he's like, you know them pretty well, and I like your opinions. So thank you, Richard. That's why I'm on that. Hopefully I won't stink the whole thing up. And uh, then there's one more I'm on on Sunday. Is that when ours is? Am I mixing everything up? No, you got it. Sunday at 4 o'clock. That's ours. And there's yet another panel I'm on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. On uh, I think that one's Saturday at 8. And that's about how to do good podcasting. And I believe that's in the Arachnid Theater. Yes. Uh, no. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> You'll have to look it up. Yeah, sorry about that. That's a good one, though. That's uh, with the women of the Pokey Problems podcast and the guy on the Switch podcast and then another guy on a podcast that's just like a science fiction musical podcast. So, uh, yeah, that one is on Saturday at 8. And it is called Podcasting from Amateur to Procaster. And it is in the Arachnid Theater. I can't believe I got that right. And I think that's it. That's what I'm doing at PAX. Oh, is Please. that all? Just the four panels? <laughs> and I, I think I'm interviewing Cliffy B about the lawbreakers. Who knows? What oh, my goodness. Like. Yeah, I know. I'm doing destructoid work there, too, for funsies. I'm constantly in awe of individuals such as yourself for whom a day job and a family life should be sufficient. And yet you do so much else and spread yourself so thin and yet maintain high levels of standards throughout it all. I'm just in awe. Oh, thanks. That means a lot. I uh, I know I'm going to die, maybe soon. So time's a-wasting. Got to make things before you croak. That's been my philosophy since I was like 18 when I figured that out. I got super sad one night. I was like, I'm totally going to be dead someday. And I was like, got to make all the stuff I can, I guess, because you can't make stuff when you're dead. You know, it's occurred to me that for all the people I have in my life who I love and who care about me, eventually, not only will I be dead, but so will they. And the things yep. that will live on will not be my words or my actions. It'll be the podcast that you can still find on the internet. Yeah, it's going to be your podcast. You're <laughs> going to be that guy from that podcast and everything else about you will be nothing. That's right. So. This is my legacy. <laughs> so that's why I, I used to try to get um, my family in on stuff I was doing all the time just so I could remember them by it. 
Um, I did a show called Talking to Women About Video Games, and quite a few family members snuck their way in there for for part of that purpose. So, yeah, you're doing a great job, Ken. You're going to live forever. Well, thank you. And I have some of the similar ambitions that you do as far as family goes. I had my father on the show a couple years ago, and I explained to my listeners that the reason was because one of the aspects of diversity that we haven't really examined on this podcast at that time was ageism. Mm. And so I wanted to explore what it meant to be a previous generation of geeks, someone who enjoyed pinball in the 70s, for example. Awesome. Or, Or Star Trek when it first aired in the 60s. Sure. I'd love to check that episode out. And all those reasons for him to be on the show were legitimate, but they were not necessarily authentic. The reason I wanted him on the show was because his health was so poor that I wanted to have something to remember him by. Sure. And sure, less sure. than a year later, he was gone. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm really glad that you did that. Um, and I'd really like to hear that episode at some point. Same with my mom. She grew up on Breakout. Uh, not grew up on, but she grew me up on Super Breakout on the Atari 5200 and played video games relentlessly with me all growing up. And I was really touched at that. She kind of phased out Nintendo years, but Atari, especially the Atari Lynx, she was huge into. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I can relate with having a parent who you learned about a whole different side of geekdom from through sharing it with them. Yeah, it's it's. I think we were brought up pretty well. Yeah, me too. We're not the worst guys. <laughs> We're close, but not the yeah. worst. There's always somebody worse than us. Well, Jonathan, we have covered so much ground in the last hour and a quarter. I know that you have many myriad activities with which to return to your attention. And is there anything else you want to cover before you know we go on for another three hours? I don't think so. Uh, yeah, it has been longer than we planned, I think. People, uh, I do encourage you to reach out to me on Twitter. It's the fastest way to get a hold of me. I'm terrible at DMs, but I'm pretty good at notifications. If I screw up, if I have a typo, if I sound like a, a passive-aggressive asshole, or if you just like a thing I did and want to explain to me why you liked it, reach out to me on Twitter at TronNots uh, is my handle there. Um, I try to check every single mention and get back to as many people as I can because your feedback is my favorite thing, uh, for better or worse. So. Other than that, that's it for me. And in the interest of full disclosure, not only have I read Destructoid and subscribed to Nintendo Force, but I have also backed a profound waste of time on Kickstarter, primarily because you tweeted about it, and I want to see more of your content. Ah, oh, thanks, Ken. Hey, that's anytime, very good. Very ethical disclosure. I would have probably forgotten to do that, so <laughs> I, I can learn to do better, and I uh, will learn from you. I appreciate it. Well, I can't say it was entirely ethical. I could just as well have said that I backed your Kickstarter because one day you might owe me a favor, and sure enough, <laughs> now here you are on my PAX panel and my podcast. Yeah, I, I, it's so it's super duper sad, but still kind of funny to me that when you like and respect people, that's when they think you might be being unethical. Like when I care about you and I think you do good work and I care about you as a human being, you think, well, there's going to be favoritism. But I like respect and care about everybody. <gasps> <laughs> so it's not like the secret's out. <laughs> it's not like there's uh, stuff only for people I like and everyone else is a jerk. Uh, I try to be good to everybody. Uh, but I, some people I know better than others. But that doesn't mean I'm going to give them better treatment. But that's a whole other conversation. Well, some people make it difficult to respect them. Mm, true. So yeah. there's that. 
That's a whole other thing. <laughs> I, I certainly, I do, uh, I guess, not to belabor because we've talked so much, but I do wish that people looked more at negative bias than this fear of positive bias in, in game journalism. I, I think it's very rare that somebody writes about a story specifically because they like the person who made the game. But I do know quite a few people who either hate fans of a game or just hate a game and hate everything it represents. And they really get fired up and negative about it in a way that's maybe, maybe unhelpful. Um, so yeah, my two cents about that and more to come at the panel. And I hope to see you all there. Excellent. I look forward to seeing you at PAX. My own travel plans prevent me from attending your other panels, but I certainly hope to see you on mine. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Ken. Good talking with you. Take care. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Uh-huh.